everybody. My name is Karen Kay, Recovered Compulsive Eater from Syracuse, New York, and my credit still transfer. I will be your host today. Our co-hosts are Betty C, Nancy J, and Sue L. And Sue L will be our questions and answers. Uh, we are, uh, will record for the first hour and a half, and the questions and answers will not be recorded. If you have any questions during the meeting, please use to mute, to, to come to me or, or to chat to uh, Susan or Betty. We ask you to please make sure you keep your microphone mute at all times. Okay, I'm muting all right now. Harlan, can you please unmute yourself when I mute all? Okay, we ask you to make sure you keep your microphone on mute at all times. During today's study, also please turn your video off if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away for your screen for any reason. I will post a link for the previous recordings and the seventh tradition in the chat function. I'll repeatedly do that throughout the meeting. I will now turn it over to Harlan G. Now everybody stay on to the end of the uh, workshop because Monday the 24th is Harlan G's 30th birthday, and we're all going to sing a happy birthday to Harlan. So we all got to get our vocal cords going. Thank okay, you. Harlan, you're up. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. And we skipped last week. Uh, we did, We for those of us who Zoomed into Athens, Greece, I hope that it was worthwhile to, to visit. Um, we have been talking about working with others, chapter seven. We have been talking about sponsorship. And before we get rolling today, and just FYI, and I will repeat this, we're going to start on page 100 when we get rolling. And we're going to start with both you and the new man. And those are the 12 step promises. But before we get to the 12 step promises, I just want to sort of review some of the things that we have been talking about since we started this chapter. And sponsorship is a concept, is a duty that a lot of people shy away from, or they go the other pendulum way, they go the other way on the pendulum and they take on too much. So like anything, we have to look for a happy medium. The modern sponsors of today are descendants, whether they know it or not, of a guy who was an alcoholic named Clarence Snyder. Clarence Snyder was the catalyst in the Akron groups breaking away from the Oxford group. And in 1937, 1938, excuse me, he started a group up in Cleveland, Ohio. And what happened in 1938 is two guys came in that were Catholics and they were drunks but they were Roman Catholics. And the, the bishop said to the, to the guys, we would really like it if you wouldn't go to Oxford group meetings because the Oxford groupers were Protestant in nature. So Clarence Snyder took a ride down to Akron and said to Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob said, you know, Clarence, they weren't such good Catholics when they were out there drinking. Just tell them to, to, to just buck up and come to the meetings. And this didn't really rest too well with Clarence Snyder. He wasn't real happy about asking someone to repudiate the teachings of their own religion. And it kind of weighed on him and this sort of bothered him. 
And he became, not just because of this, but because of some other things that happened, like the Oxford groups, to tell you the truth, were not all that happy with what was termed the drunk squad of the Oxford group. And the drunk squad of the Oxford group were these guys that were coming in that weren't all that interested in becoming Christian. They were interested in a way of finding God so that they didn't drink themselves to death. And Clarence held in Cleveland, Ohio, he held in 1939, the very first meeting any you know, the first meeting anywhere in Ohio. In New York, they had already broken away. In New York, they had broken away uh, two years previous. But the Akron groups were very reticent to break out. And they broke out and he held what was called a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous named after the book that was just published in April, April the 10th, 1939. And this was, now why am I talking about all this history when it comes to sponsorship? The reason is Clarence Snyder was also the father of modern day sponsorship. How so? He took the book and what he simply did was guided the newcomer. They called them pigeons. Pigeon was a term that was coined by Dr. Bob. Now, most of us are too young to remember carrier pigeons, homing pigeons. They would tie a message to the pigeon and it would fly back to its coop and deliver the message. And Dr. Bob said, these guys are pigeons. They carry a message, hopefully, but before they do, they crap all over. And pigeons have no sphincter, so they crap all over. And that's where he got the name pigeons. Another term that was used for people that were, in, uh, were new was babies. I'm working with my baby. In the big book, they are referred to as, um, <coughs> excuse me, they are, <coughs> excuse me, they are referred to as protege, a, your protege. But the word sponsor does not appear in the first 164 pages of the big book of AA. What they meant by a sponsor in 1939 when the big book came out was this. The stigma of alcoholism was a much stronger and much more ominous stigma than it is today. The stigma of alcoholism could mean because there were no protected classes in those days legally. There were no protected classes. There was no uh, 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 handicap legislation. There was none of that stuff. If you found out that a man or woman was an alcoholic, you could fire them legally. You could make their life miserable by not hiring them, by firing them, or what have you. And so the stigma of alcoholism in 1939 was quite the different stigma than it is today. We know many people in very high profile situations that are alcoholics. There's actors, there 
there's actresses, there's uh, Chuck Lorre in, in Hollywood. He just they went off the air, but mom, he was relating a lot of his experiences through the show, through, through the show on CBS. And he's a very high profile guy. He's a member of the Pacific group in California, which was Clancy Immeslin's group. And there are many, uh, uh, what's his name? The guy, uh, uh, Lawrence, not Lawrence Olivier, but anyway, I forgot his name. He was in Thor. He played Odin. He's one, he was one of Clancy Immeslin's sponsees as well. I'm not breaking their anonymity. They broke their anonymity by coming out and saying, this is what is. I'm not breaking anyone's anonymity. I wouldn't know unless they broke their anonymity. Okay, so the word sponsor at that time meant this is someone who could vouch for you that you were indeed a person that had a drinking problem. They didn't just let you in the meeting. Now the Oxford group, they had no way of controlling who came in and who didn't come in. But when it came down to the AAs that split away, Bill Wilson and uh, Fitz and Jimmy Burwell and Hank, they broke off from the Oxford group around late 37, early 38. So, but in Ohio, it took a while longer for the uh, alcoholics to extricate, to leave the Oxford group movement. But the word sponsor at that time, whether you were in New York or in Ohio, didn't matter. The word sponsor had a very different meaning. Now, getting back to Clarence Snyder. So you thought I forgot about that. Clarence Snyder took the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And what he simply did was he would go through the book with the pigeon, with the protege, whatever, you know, the baby, whatever it is, the sponsee that we would call today. And he would look at say the doctor's opinion and he would go through the book, but it would say something like, um, in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. That's, he's talk, that's talking about the Oxford group. He would leave that alone pretty much. But here's a sentence, and I just want to read it to you. This is a sentence that he would look at, and he would change the sentences, the declarative sentences to questions, and he would change the questions to declarative sentences. Now, let's go look at this sentence here. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy, I'm on page XXVI, just for the, you don't have to turn to it. I can read the sentence, you can hear it, but not just FYI, I'm on XXVI. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. He would take a sentence like that and he would turn it into the question. In your opinion, not the doctor's opinion, in your opinion, based on how the doctor has defined allergy as an actual physical craving for more of the same, do you believe you have that same allergy? Yes, you do, or no, you don't. Can you drink one beer? Can you eat one ice cream bar? Can you eat one cupcake? Whatever that may be for you, one potato chip. Uh, there was a brand of potato chips when I was a kid, uh, Jay's Potato Chips. It wasn't never sold nationally. It was totally a local Chicago brand. And the, the, um, the what do you call it? The uh, commercial was Jay's. 
you can't eat just one. Now, who could eat one potato chips? But you don't have to eat a railroad car full of them like I used to. You can eat, you know, whatever reasonable amount. But based on this, do you think you have an allergy? Here's how, here's another sentence. Just I'm taking something at random here. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. And he would turn that into a question by saying, do you think you could do this on your own or are you going to need some help here? And of course, if the person's honest with themselves, especially in the early days, because the bottoms didn't really start to come up. And when I say the bottoms didn't come up, what I, meant, what I mean specifically is this just to save us from the Q&A on that one. The ones who came in in the earliest days were very low bottom alcoholics. They were not high bottoms. Uh, a low bottom is a guy who's all drunk. I mean, like unbelievable. And a high bottom is a much more functional person. That's all it means. A low bottom is a person who cannot function. A high bottom is a person that can function reasonably well, even though they're alcoholic. Okay. So you get the picture. And where I see people with this sponsorship concept. Either they won't sponsor anybody because they're afraid, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know if the person, what are people going to think of me? I can answer that question. I can answer all the questions. What are you going to say? Let the book do the talking for you. The book will sponsor the person better than I can. The doctor's opinion in chapters one, two, and three are step one. Make sure they have a concept of everything in there as best you can, but go through it quickly. Chapter four, we agnostic, step two. Chapter five, into action, or excuse me, how it works is steps three and four. Ch uh, chapter six, into action is steps five through 11. And chapter seven is step 12 and let the book do the work for you. That's all you need to do. And what are people going to think of me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Show of hands. How many people got up this morning thinking about me? Nobody. Okay. The bottom line is nobody's going to think anything. And if the protege wants to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. And if they don't want to recover boys and girls, you can't say the right thing. We can't make them want to do this work. We can't make them feel like they've hit their bottom. And when the fear of more food is more overwhelming to them than the fear of letting food go, that's the moment that recovery can take place. I'm going to say that again because it's real important. The moment that the fear of more eating outweighs the fear of letting the food go, that's the moment when recovery can take place. And if you're in that moment, you as a sponsor can open up a door for them through your hope, your strength, and your experience. And if you're not at that moment and they're really not ready to give up the food, they're holding on to vestiges and lurking notions about how they're going to do this their way, like I did. And lurking notions just means these ideas in the back of your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you some lip service, but 
on my birthday, at a wedding, at a bar mitzvah, at a christening, at a baby naming, I'm having cake, I'm having liquor, I'm doing whatever I'm doing. These lurking notions, like if there's a day with a Y in it, I'm going to just eat everything I want. So these kinds of things are not things that most sponsors are going to be able to get out of their head. They have to be bashed and battered enough so that they will go, as Kim G says, from yes, but to yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. You have to go from yes, but to yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. Very important. And what's the only thing that can make that transition? Lots of pain lots of suffering, lots of degradation, lots of shame. And when you get beat down by this disease enough, now you say to yourself, hopefully before you die, now you'll say to yourself, okay, I'm ready to do business, hopefully. But normally it's a process of great difficulty. Okay. I also see people, they want to sponsor everybody. They've got a whole gaggle of sponsees. They're sponsoring people all over the place. And those people normally are in trouble. There's a happy medium between the two extremes. Don't sponsor everybody. Don't sponsor nobody. Now, I know in questions and answers, I know what question is going to come up every time I talk about this. How many people should I sponsor? I don't know. I don't know your lifestyle. If you're retired, you're not working, you have no responsibilities like, you know, whatever, no little kids, no whatever, you may be able to sponsor more people than someone who's working full-time. I would say not less than two or three. I would say not more than five or six. That's just my ballpark based on what I have seen. I have said this before, and I will say it again. For everybody, it's different. The other thing that I see when it comes to sponsorship and service is we confuse step 12 with steps 10 and 11, and we're not really concentrating on our own recovery. Let's remember that step 12 is a three-part step. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Am I doing my 10 steps? Am I doing my 11th step? Am I taking care of me or am I losing myself in service to other people and ignoring my own needs? That is something I've seen a lot of through my trips through OA and through the decades that I've been around. I see people that lose themselves in service and do not uh, tend to their own needs. They're keeping secrets. They're holding resentments. They're holding on to fears. They're not tending to their own needs. So it's very, very important to strike a doable balance. A balance is always better. Yes, it's important to sponsor people. Yes, it's important to get active in helping others. That is the life's blood of this altruistic way of life. But you have to make sure that you as an individual doing the sponsoring are in recovery 
yourself. Very, very important for me to remember. And that is every time I'm on an airplane, I am on an Al-Anon meeting. And what do they say on the airplane? Put your mask on first. Put your mask on first before you help anyone else. <sighs> okay, very, very important. Put your mask on first. Okay, now let's go to page 100. And we're going to talk about the 12-step promises. And these are some of the most beautiful, eloquent promises in the book. And I've said this before, and I'm going to repeat that today. Guys, if I had a pill in my possession that could cure you of this horrible, horrible disease, because I love you, not because I don't love you, I would not give it to you. Why wouldn't I give it to you? Because this journey, this way of life, this this unbelievable, unbelievable journey is the most magical thing around the play. Oh, the places that you'll go and the people that you'll meet are unreal. There are 121 of us on the line right now. And I dare say that this is living proof of the magic of this way of life, that we are bound together as few groups can be. And we are not only bound together by a common illness. If we had a group of, can't, God forbid, cancer patients, leukemia patients, pneumonia sufferers, whatever that may be, that's one thing. But we are bound together, not just because of our common malady, we are bound together because we share a common solution. That 121 people have come together today on a Saturday. And if you're listening on a podcast, whatever day of the week it is that you're listening to this, it is May 22nd, 2021, it's a Saturday. It's beautiful in Arizona. I hope it's beautiful where you are too. We're getting into the spring and summer, so I hope it's beautiful. But the, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, then it's winter. But the bottom line is this. We are people who speak and understand the language of the heart. That I can open up the pain that I feel to any one of you, and you could do it to me. And we can communicate at a level that few can I have many wonderful friends. I have friends who are going to gather together tomorrow on Zoom, and we're going to have a little uh, kind of a soiree for my birthday on Zoom. I asked them not to do it on Monday. They wanted to do it on Monday, but I have a, a OA business meeting on Monday that I don't want to miss. But um, we're going to do it tomorrow. And I love them and they love me. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing to be a part of their lives. I know everything about them and they know everything about me. My mother and father love these kids. We're still friends. We've been friends since the 1950s and early 60s. And it's a joy to be a part of their life. And it's a joy to have them as my, part of my life. But you know me better than they do. 
They don't really understand why I still have to mess with this. Why do I go the places that I go? Why do I have to be here now? Why am I not out doing something or whatever? They just really don't understand and they never will. Food, why is that such a big deal to anybody? They just can't understand it. And when they were, when we were little kids, I've told you stories about them many, many times that their parents would go and they would take a hamburger and split the hamburger between a brother and a sister. They would split the hamburger and neither one would finish their half of the hamburger. And they would take a small amount of French fries and divide it into two piles and neither sibling would finish their pile of french fries. They just couldn't finish more than about four or maybe five french fries. Well, we understand what that's like. We understand what we are and who we are. And I can't go anywhere else and find people that speak and understand the language of the heart. What a gift it is and how beautiful it's going to be when we are going to be together again. I mean, every day is getting better. I hope it's in Los Angeles in January. I don't know. Or if it's in Newark for the Vision for You convention, or if it's in Los Angeles for the OA birthday, I hope that we will get a chance to laugh together and cry together and hug one another and love one another and let others love us. It is one of the real joys of life to be at some of these conventions and to be at some of these gatherings, even if it's a little intimate retreat or even if it's just a great big convention, the little groups, the little things that we say to each other and the hugging is a joy to be a part of. And my friends, I love them. They love me. They could never understand such a thing. Unless you're giving away money, they're probably not going to want to hug you. Unless you're giving away free Mercedes or something like that, they probably wouldn't think of it. But it is a joy to be a part of it. Okay, let's go to page 100. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. Let's stop right there. We must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. Remember that this is a progressive disease. What does that mean, progressive disease? It gets worse and worse and worse over time. And my recovery must be commiserate to that progressive nature of the disease. So that means that all the time, every day, I must look for more ways to improve my spiritual life, my spiritual progress. And for me, prayer is a part of that, but I must also translate prayer into action. And more often than not, there are two types of actions I need to take in any given day. Action to help myself get rid of anger, fear, selfishness, and dishonesty. And I also have to make sure I take action to help you get rid of yours. I must help others as well. Very, very important for me to remember that the actions that I take specifically to enhance spiritual progress are to help my own recovery 
and use other people to help me to do that. I have a sponsor. I call my sponsor every day. My sponsor lives in Los Angeles, California. I talk to him every single day and that's just the way it goes. And others reach out to me and that's as it should be because without them, I would die. So that means every day, remember that the disease is a living, breathing organism. The disease lives and breathes. Where does the disease live? The disease lives specifically in the buildup of emotions. The disease lives in the lack of power that we have over guilt and shame and boredom and happiness and fear and anger and lust and regret and jealousy. That's where the disease lives. Where does the recovery live? The recovery lives in the actions that I take to lower the level of these emotions through the working of the steps, specifically two and 10 for me, two and 10, two and 10. What are the two most underutilized steps? Two and 10. What are the most misunderstood steps? Three and four. So the, the disease lives in my allowing these emotions to build up unchecked. And that means, as we've discussed many times, I'm not doing my 10 steps. I'm not doing my 11th step. I'm not praying. I'm not doing a gratitude list. I'm not helping. I'm not doing what I need to do. So these emotions are building and building and building and building. And what happens when these emotions build, boys and girls, what happens then? Eating becomes a step up from where I am. Eating becomes preferable to the pain of not eating because when I'm not working steps, the pain of not eating is so enormous, so burdensome, so debilitating, so horrible that eating becomes preferable. Where does recovery live? Recovery lives in the actions that I take, whether I'm willing or not is not material, in the actions that I take to lower the level of these emotions. Does everybody know where the recovery lives and where the disease lives? I hope so, because this is something that is very, very important to know. So what do I need to do? I need to take action. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. And it's never gonna change, never. Let's continue. If you persist, persist also alludes to continued action remarkable things will happen. I don't have the time to tell you the remarkable things that have happened. You know, I get so lost sometimes. I've been in sales my whole life. I'm in sales. I sell on the phone, which is so horrible. I hate it. But I, I was 
so morbidly obese, what else was I going to do? I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to do something useful with my life. I ended up selling on the phone because that was a job I could do and weigh what I weighed and look the way I looked. But God took those skills and I helped other people that, so that they could make a living. And remarkable things will happen is the understatement of the century. I'm alive. I am alive. In spite of my best efforts, in spite of the efforts that this disease put forth to kill me, I am alive. And not only am I alive, but yes, I have some heartache, as many of you know, or if you don't, I have a daughter. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. She's married. I have a grandson. I've never met him. He's going to be three years old. My daughter does not speak to me. I have no idea why. I don't think she knows why either. She doesn't speak to me. I'm alone. I wish I had a wife. I wish I had whatever. I don't. I'm alone. Okay, fine. But I'm not really alone. I have a large group of friends, 125 of them are here on the line right now. I have people that love me and I in turn love them back. And loving them and having them love me is a great joy. And I'm, because of this program, I am not only focused on the mountain ranges in front of me that are yet, have yet to be conquered. I can look back with pride and gratitude, more gratitude than pride at the mountains that I've already crossed, at the things that I've already accomplished in my life. I have a house, I have a brand new car, paid cash for it, my bills are paid. I have a life that works. I have purpose to my life. I have an underlying rhythm of my life. There are people that are counting on me and I'm counting on other people and my life has purpose. I'm getting an age now, I'm gonna be 67 years old on Monday. I'm getting to be of an age where most of my friends are retired or retiring. And many of them ask this question all the time. I would retire, but what the heck would I do with myself? What the heck would I do with myself? I never have to wonder what I'm going to do with myself. I know the answer to that question. There's always a meeting. There's always somebody that needs to do a 10 step. There's always somebody that needs a sponsor. There's always somebody that needs an outreach call every single day on a vision for you at the beginning of the second meeting. They give the names, time zones and phone numbers of people who are brand new to vision. I can call them. I can take calls. I never have to wonder, what am I going to do with myself? I have an answer. I have a purpose to my life. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing that God has given me and that I know why I'm alive. I am alive to pass this message to the still suffering person. Let's continue. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Now, that's the understatement of the year. Maybe life didn't go my way. Maybe my script didn't get stuck to. There were dreams that I dreamed that will always be unfulfilled. 
but look at what God has done for me. Look at the places I was able to go. When I was a little boy, my family was not rich at all. We lived in a rented apartment in an area of very nice homes. I went to a school with a lot of kids that came from money. I went to Mather High School in Chicago. And at that time, there was money at Mather. And there were kids that came from beautiful families. And I came from a beautiful family, but we were very poor. My father was an immigrant. He never, he never understood really business, nothing. And we scraped by. I never went anywhere. I never was on an airplane. I never saw an ocean. I never whatever. I never did a lot of the things that kids do, that people do. I never went on a vacation with my parents, ever. We couldn't go. We just couldn't do it. Look at the places I have been today. How grateful I am. I have been all over the place in service to Overeaters Anonymous. I have met the most magnificent people, and they have extended their hearts and their souls and their generosity toward me in a way that I cannot even vocalize. I don't have the vocabulary and they have touched my heart and we have laughed together and we've cried together and many, many of my dreams have come true. I went to Jerusalem and I prayed at the Wailing Wall. I went there and I saw Yad Vashem, the memorial to the Holocaust. I went there and I saw King David's tower. I went there and I saw old Jerusalem. I went there and saw things and did things that I have wanted to do since I was a little boy. And I went there on OA's dime. Those people never let me take one penny out of my pocket. They paid for everything. They made sure I was taken care of. There was a car to take me wherever it is I wanted to go. And there were people that showed me around. And I've been from Jerusalem, Israel, to Anchorage, Alaska, from Anchorage to San Diego, from San Diego to Cape Cod, and most places in between. What a glorious life it has been. And if my life ended today, which I hope it doesn't, but if my life ended today, I know that I died a man who served God. I know that I did the best that I could with what I had. I hope and hope and hope that when I cross over, God will say, good job, good job, you did good. And that's why I told my then wife and I told another lady that I had been dating, we're not dating, we haven't been dating for a long time, unfortunately, but I told them, if you're with me at death, do not bring me food. I don't trust myself. I may beg you for food. Don't bring it to me. I want to go to God clean. I don't want to go to God filthy, dirty from, you know, a Rice Krispie treat or a Reese's peanut butter cup or a Butterfinger or something. I don't want to go. I don't want to fumble on the one yard line. Let's continue. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances the dictates, not the suggestions, the dictates. Do what God is telling you to do in this book. When you see a line in the book that says not to do something, don't do it. If you see a line in the book that says, now we did this and now we did that, do those things. Follow what it says. Is that so hard? 
Really? Is that so tough? Was eating so wonderful? Was eating so great? I've eaten more Doritos and more Butterfingers and Kit Kat bars than most people I know. They're not that good. Although in my mind, they look good if I'm not in fit spiritual condition. You know, when I was a little boy, there was a bakery shop and there was a florist and there was a butcher. And now forget it. Now everything, at least, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, you can pretty much forget that. Everything's under one roof and it's in the uh, supermarket. And I go to a supermarket right here, one, two minutes from my house and it's huge. And there's a bakery in there and there's a butcher shop in there and there's a fish market in there and a floral shop. And when you first walk into the store, <laughs> the first smell that can hit you is the cookies and the cakes and the breads that they're baking at the bakery. And I'm not responsible for my first thoughts. Sometimes those, those scents, those aromas will waft into my nose and I will think, oh man, I'd love some of that. I'm not responsible for my first thoughts but I am responsible for my first action and I'm responsible for my second thought. And I often say to myself, how lucky am I that I don't have to go over there and get one of those samples and spend money that I don't have, spend money that I don't wanna spend to eat food that I know very well is killing me. How many times did I spend money on food that I knew was killing me many thousands of times. I don't have to live in that guilt and that shame and that remorse. A very wise man told me once, if everything you did today, everywhere you went today, everything that came in and out of your mouth was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? Because that means the world is gonna see it. And when I can honestly sit here in front of God and all his children, and I can tell you, it has been a very long time since I've gone anywhere, eaten something or said something or did something that I want kept secret unto me. And the emancipation of that guilt, that shame, that remorse, is that new and wonderful world for me. I didn't do anything today, yesterday, last year, whatever. I didn't do anything that I would be ashamed to tell you. Whatever it is, you are free to know. Except for when I go to the bathroom, you can video me day and night. I'm really good with that. Okay, let's continue. Oh my God, is it really? Oh my God, I can't believe it's that late. Oh God, all right. When I'm on page 100, when working with a man and his family, you should take, should take care not to participate in their quarrels. You are a sponsor. You are not a marriage counselor. You are not a family therapist. You are not any of those things. And even if you are a marriage counselor, even if you are a family therapist, even if you are a psychiatrist or you're a healthcare professional or whatever it is you are, this is Overeaters Anonymous. These people did not come to you for professional help. They came to you for sponsorship. Stay out of areas 
that we don't belong in. And family quarrels are that are one of those areas. You may spoil your chance at being helpful if you do. Don't get too, you know, don't get involved. Be, but urge, but urge upon a man's family that he has been a very sick person and should be treated accordingly. In most cases, you will not have contact with their families, but if you do, follow these instructions. You should warn against arousing resentment or jealousy. You should point out that his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Show them that he has entered upon a period of growth. Ask them to remember that when they are impatient, the blessed fact of his sobriety. Why are those lines important today when normally we won't have contact with our, with our families? Because those lines are important in another relationship that you have. And you've had this relationship your whole life. And you know who that relationship is with? It's with yourself. Be patient with yourself, but keep moving down the line. Don't use this to, to stop. Be patient with yourself. Go, but go. What do I mean by that? Go, but go means work towards your recovery and nothing is going to happen overnight. If you keep moving and you keep progressing, remarkable things will happen. So these lines are not only important to remember for our relationship with others, they are important in our relationship with ourselves. Very, very important. If you have been successful in solving your own domestic problems, tell the newcomer's family how that was accomplished. In this way, you can set them on the right track without being critical of them. The story of how you and your wife settle your difficulties is worthy of is worth any amount of criticism. If you're asked, you can offer your own strength, hope, and ex hope, strength, and experience. Otherwise, remember, use these lines on yourself. I've come to this fork in the road before. Here's what I did that worked. Here's what I did that didn't work. Assuming we are spiritually fit, very big qualifier there. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars or fr our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows that this is not necessarily so. One of the things that I frequently do, and this is one of the things that I do that disturbs some, and I'm sorry that it does, I will mention specific foods. I am not going to sit here and say, you know, the other day I got a call from a woman and she wanted, you know, that frozen stuff that comes in a box and you keep it in the freezer. I'm going to say she was having a problem with ice cream. In the big book, it mentions beer, whiskey, ale. It mentions highball. It mentions all kinds of stuff. Why are we beating around the bush? Why do I have to hear somebody at a meeting say the round thing that comes in a square box that they cut into triangles? 
Why don't you just freaking say pizza and be done with it? We all know what the hell you're talking about. Who the hell do you think you're fooling or who do you think you're protecting? If I'm going to go eat pizza, I'm going to go eat pizza. If I'm going to go eat ice cream, I'm going to go eat ice cream. So you saying pizza or you saying ice cream, if I'm in fit spiritual condition, what does it say at the beginning of the paragraph? Assuming we are spiritually fit, what does it say in the next line? We meet these conditions every day. I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, as, as most of you know. This is a tourist town. The number one industry in Arizona is tourism. And the people come here from all over the world. We advertise in every cold weather city imaginable, both here and in Europe and anywhere. They pull in tourists here. That is the number one industry. I live right off of Scottsdale Road and Scottsdale Road between Shea and uh, Indian School is Resort Row. One hotel, one resort after the other. We've got five-star hotels here. We've got no-star hotels here and everything in between. I think in the dead of summer, they'll pay you to stay there. But in the wintertime, some of these rooms here, like right by my house, they can run you three, four, five, six hundred dollars a night, depending upon where you want to stay. That means every block, every two feet, forget every block, every two freaking feet is another restaurant. I walk out of a meeting or I walk out of here and everything is this restaurant, that restaurant, this place, that place. Who are you kidding? Who am I kidding? If I want to eat whatever, it's not a secret that it's right there. It's not a secret that it's right in front of me. And I bet where you live, you may live in a quiet area. You may live in a rural area. You may live in a big metro area. There is fast food and junk food and garbage all around you. Maybe you don't live a block from it or two blocks from it like I do, but you know where to get it and you know how to get it. It's not a secret. You, We are sharp cookies. We know exactly where to get it. We meet these conditions every day. I'm on page 101. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There is something the matter with his spiritual status. His only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland ice cap. And even there, an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin everything. Ask any woman who has sent her husband to distant places on the theory he would escape the alcohol problem. And why is Bill very familiar with this? Remember in Bill's story, they went from city to country and back. What do you think they were doing, boys and girls? The Burnhams, the Lois is a, was a Burnham, and the Burnhams had a summer home in Manchester, Vermont. Manchester, Vermont. Hmm, who lived there? Hmm. Evie Thatcher's family had one there. Hmm, Roland Hazard's family had one there. Oh, and where is Manchester, Vermont? I've been to Manchester, Vermont. But where is Manchester, Vermont? It's right across from a little town called East 
Dorset, Vermont. And in East Dorset, Vermont, that's where Bill Wilson was born. So we see how it came together. Now, let's take a look at Bill's story for just a minute. Don't turn there. I'm, not, I'm just going to refer to it. I'm, I'm not going to read from it. We went from city to country and back. There were flights from city to country and back. Why were they going from city to country and back? Because when he would drink in the city, they would take a geographic to the country. When he would drink in the country, they would take a geographic back to the city. Did any of that work? Hell no. Hell no, it didn't work. You know how you go into a state and uh, it says, welcome to Illinois, the land of Lincoln, or welcome to Arizona, the, the, the Grand Canyon state. You know what I'm talking about, right? My father was an immigrant to this country. I have to tell you this story. I won't take too long with it. My father was an immigrant to this country. And oftentimes, like on a Saturday or a Sunday, I wouldn't know what to do with him. He was at the end of his life. I'd put him in the car. I'd take him for a ride. And we would go north. And we would go toward Wisconsin. And he would start crying sometimes. Why did he start crying? It was tears of joy. It would say, you are leaving Illinois, the land of Lincoln. And then you go for about three more minutes in the car, four more minutes in the car. And it would say, welcome to Wisconsin, America's dairy land. Governor Tommy Thompson welcomes you to Wisconsin. And my father was overwhelmed with emotion because what a country, he'd clap his hands, he'd say, what a country, what a country, what a country. But he could not believe that you could go from Illinois to Wisconsin. You don't need papers. There's no checkpoint. There's no soldiers. You don't have to pass through a, a, a military uh, uh, fort. You can just go to Wisconsin because you want to go to Wisconsin. He, he thought that was the most amazing thing he had ever seen in his life. You could just go from Illinois to Wisconsin and you don't need any papers. What a, He'd say, what a country. I had to share that. Even though it has nothing to do with recovery, I felt very compelled to share that. That's who my father was. He was amazed by the small little things that make America, America. He just couldn't get over it. Anyway, let's get back to our to our show, to our program. Where it says, welcome to Arizona or welcome to Colorado or welcome to California, there should be a little addendum sign underneath. If you're alcoholic or addicted, this won't work either. Because we search for places, we search for places to go where maybe it won't, our alcoholism or our compulsive overeating or gambling or whatever, womanizing or sex addiction, love addiction, whatever that may be, drugs, it, wherever you go, there you are. And in our belief, I'm on page 101, any scheme of combating alcoholism, which alcoholism, which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. If I say Butterfinger Bar and you go out and eat one, guess what? You were gonna anyway. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever because you're relying on willpower. If you're in fit spiritual condition, honest to God, you could put 
5,000 Butterfinger bars in my living room and count them and come back tomorrow, they'll all be there. I have no interest. As hand to God, hand to God, I have no interest in eating them. They're just going to kill me. They're just going to make me sick. We have tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. Did it say sometimes failed? No. Did it say usually failed? No. It said always failed. Willpower won't work. Geographics won't work. Switching nutritionists may be a good idea, but it's not about the nutritionist. It's about your fit spiritual condition. Switching nutritionists, switching sponsors is sometimes very warranted. And I understand that. But that in and of itself is not going to bring about a recovery from this disease. Let's see if we can get in a, a paragraph more. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking. If, if this is in italics, if we have a legitimate reason for being there, stop right there. I heard an old expression long, long time ago. You hang around the barbershop long enough and you're going to get a haircut. What does that mean? You tempt fate long enough. What are you doing at the bakery? What are you doing at Dunkin' Donuts? What are you doing at Krispy Kreme? Why are you hanging around there? I know the coffee at Dunkin' Donuts is really good, but there's other places you could get a cup of coffee. You don't need to be hanging around there. You don't need to be putting yourself in those positions. And to tempt fate, you better be in fit spiritual condition because if you're not, you're going you're gonna to be in trouble. Again, you must be in fit spiritual condition. If we have a legitimate reason for being there, you have no legitimate reason for being there, get the hell out of there. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, or plain ordinary whoopee parties. I'm going to throw down the challenge. I want somebody to throw a whoopee party. I have no idea. I don't think I've ever been to a whoopee party in my life. I want to go to a whoopee party before I die. Somebody, some maybe when we're in Los Angeles or we're in Newark or something like that, maybe somebody could bring the ingredients and I, on one night, not a night of the convention, like I get in Wednesday to Los Angeles. So I'm there Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. No, I leave Sunday for Arizona. Somebody throw a whoopee party, please. I want to go to a whoopee party before I die. To a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. You will note that we have made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social business or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such, a, such places? If you answer these questions satisfactorily, you need have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best, but be sure you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and your motive in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. Very important instruction. What I do 
normally when I go to like, if I go to Thanksgiving or I go to whatever I go to and I'm not eating, a lot of times my friends, they serve dinner like on Thanksgiving, they'll serve dinner like seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. That doesn't really work for me. I eat before I come. But what do I do when I get there? I schmy around. There's a lot of people that are 80, 90 years old there. So all I need to do is what did the doctor say or how was your operation? And I've got a, a running conversation. I don't even know what the hell's going on with them. I'll just say, what did the doctor say or how was your operation? And I'm, I'm going to listen to a whole conversation here for 45 minutes to an hour. But what I will do is I will say, hey, can I take your plate? Hey, can I take your thing? And I help out. Why do I do that? It gets me out of myself. And as long as I'm going to be of service, I'm not going to be thinking about eating. I'm not going to be thinking about food. They may as well be serving shoes, shoes that don't fit me. I will have no interest in the food. But if I sit there and ruminate about, oh, all these people are getting to eat this and they're getting to eat that. And where's mine? And how come I, I'm, I might as well take, take myself out of the ball game right now. I have to be of service. And that's unilateral. It's not just this time or that time. I need to be of service. Go or stay away, whichever seems best. But be sure you're on solid spiritual, solid spiritual ground before you start. And your motive in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you'll get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. But if you are shaky, you better work with another alcoholic instead. Live to recover or recover to live. You better recover to live. Don't live to recover. Go to parties. Go to the holidays. Enjoy your birthdays. Enjoy life. That's what this is all about. This is not about sitting at your house and stark raving abstinent or you're going to swing from the chandeliers and I'm going to go home and not eat. I'm going to go home and not eat. That's no way to live. That's no way to live. Who wants to live that way? That's no way to live. Go home and see what you can do for others, but live your life. Go and enjoy your children. Go and enjoy your friends. Go and do the things that you like and be a part of life. Be a part of everything that you are born to be a part of. That's what this is all about. We are not fulfilling God's destiny by isolating ourselves and going into this, I'm going to go home and I'm not going to eat. That doesn't serve anybody. Okay, now I'm going to start next week on page 102, Y, sit. Okay, now with a long face. Okay, we're going to probably finish chapter seven next week and we'll see if we get further. The vote was taken that no matter when I finish chapter seven, we are not going to do what we did last time. Last time you guys voted overwhelmingly to start over again with the doctor's opinion or the prefaces. Now we're going to go to chapter eight, two wives, because that's what you guys overwhelmingly had decided. All right, now it's time for Q and A. There's two yes, rules, two rules for Q and A, no food questions. 
And for the love of God, no math questions, specifically algebra and geometry, no math questions. All right, questions about the Cubs though are encouraged. Okay. Well, Let's thank you very much, Harlan. I think um, we have already had a whoopee party today. What whoopee means is a loud festive occasion, merry making, celebration, and merriment. So it doesn't think <laughs> you provided that for us today. If not, it'll be for your uh, birthday party on Sunday. So before the questions, we're going to sing you a happy birthday. Then I'm going to stop the recording. It's also Nancy Jays is on the same day with yes. this one. Okay, so we're all going to everybody start. Don't have me be the only one singing. Unmute, please. Okay. All right, guys, ready? Please don't let me do this alone. All your voice is covered in love. Then we'll turn it over to Sue L uh, for a Q and A. Happy birthday, birthday to, to you. Happy birthday 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 to you.